Dear brothers and sisters and young people, the title of our study is taken from Isaiah 6, verse 8. Here am I, send me. Isaiah's spontaneous and willing response to the experience of the vision he has been given. In verse 1, we are given a specific historical setting. It is the year that King Uzziah died. Our attention is drawn to Isaiah, a king of Judah who presumptuously attempted to act as a king priest and was smitten with leprosy because of his sin. And his example provides a contrast to the one that Isaiah saw. In this vision, which transported his mind into the millennial age of the kingdom, Isaiah saw a depiction of God's true king priest who would provide the cure for spiritual leprosy of sin and iniquity and subsequently be exalted in glory. In verse 1, it says that Isaiah saw a vision of the exalted Lord high and lifted up, sitting on a throne in the temple, wearing priestly garments. This is a king priest. In verse 2, we're told there are seraphim in attendance, and we hope to show that these represent, as symbolic agents of judgment, the immortal saints in the kingdom. And they cry one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And verse 4, the posts of the door moved at this cry. Some kind of earthquake, perhaps, went on. And the house was filled with smoke, we're told. And verse 5, there's Isaiah's reaction. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, he says, like a leper. A leper had to go around with his hand upon his mouth, unclean, unclean. But in verses 6 and 7, Isaiah's iniquity is taken away, his sin is purged. And so in verse 8, we have his wonderful response to the invitation, whom shall I send? Here am I, send me. And we'd just like to put a few points up from the historical background of King Uzziah, which we could find in Second Chronicles chapter 26. It's more by way of contrast, because in Uzziah, we have a human king who reigned a long time, but presumptuously tried to make himself king priest and failed, was punished for his iniquity. And by contrast, Isaiah sees God's true high priest, God would provide, who would not fail. In Second Chronicles 26, just pick up a few of these. Uh, he reigned a long time, 52 years. 16 years old when he began to reign, and for a large part of his reign, it says that he did that was right in the sight of the Lord. And he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. And the chapter describes that he was a very successful military leader against the surrounding nations the Philistines, the Arabians, and the Ammonites, because God helped him. 
He was a prolific builder, brought great material wealth to the nation. He built up a strong army, which was well-equipped. He invented new engines of war. It says that his name spread far abroad, for he was marvelously helped until, until he was strong. And Isaiah wanted to lift himself up to be a king priest. In verses 17 and 18 of that Chronicles chapter, we read that Azariah, who was the high priest at the time, and 80 of the priests with him very courageously withstood the king. In fact, manhandled him over the temple. Interestingly, there was an earthquake in Isaiah's day, long remembered. It's recorded in Zechariah chapter 14. And Josephus records that the earthquake occurred when Isaiah transgressed. But how reliable Josephus is, we're not quite sure. He went into the temple to burn incense. He wanted to fill the house with the smoke of his incense, but was not able to do that. And so he was struck with leprosy in the forehead, a seat of thinking. And it says very sadly in verse 21 that Isaiah the king was a leper under the day of his death and dwelt in a separate house, being a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. But God can cure leprosy. Surely Isaiah would have known of a previous occasion of Naaman, the Syrian, in Elisha's day, cured. And later on, we know in the reign of Hezekiah, if Hezekiah's problem was a kind of leprosy, then Hezekiah was healed because he prayed. Why didn't Isaiah seek for forgiveness and healing? In Leviticus chapter 14, verse 2, it says, this shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought unto the priest. So perhaps Isaiah could not humble himself to ask for forgiveness and healing from his God. If he was healed, he would have to go to the high priest, Azariah, the very one who had withstood him and rebuked him. And so he remained a leper to the day of his death. Human pride is very destructive. So when we start to look at the details that we have in Isaiah chapter 6 of this vision that Isaiah saw, in verse 1, it says that it was in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon that throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Who did Isaiah see? Not in actuality. But in vision, the throne was in the most holy place of the temple. The word train is the same word as the hem of the high priest's garments. This person evidently is a king priest after the order of Melchizedek. Many years later, the prophet Zechariah was instructed to perform a coronation of Joshua, the high priest, after the coming back from the captivity of Babylon. He put a crown upon the head of the high priest, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to proclaim to those that witnessed the enactment, behold the man whose name is the branch, even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, 
and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. The responsibilities of the tribe of Judah as king and of Levi as priests brought together in one man, God's son. You probably noticed that in verse 1, the word Lord is not in the capital letters, which is the usual way of identifying, certainly in the authorized version and in many other versions, identifying the memorial name of God, Yahweh, but it is from the Hebrew Adonai, title of God. It's also in verse 8 and in verse 11 rendered that way. Apparently, these are three of the 134 places where the suffering, the scribes who copied out the scrolls, through mistaken reverence for the memorial name of Yahweh, substituted Adonai. But they haven't done it consistently throughout this chapter. Isaiah declares in verse 5, Mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. Isaiah did not see the form or the person of the Lord God himself. God said to Moses, no man can see me and live. We have an inspired New Testament commentary on this vision in John chapter 12, which helps us understand who, or perhaps more precisely, what Isaiah saw. This is an example a God manifestation, where the authority and the name of the Lord is vested in his appointed representative. In this section from John's Gospel, it's chapter 12, verses 37 to 41, there are two quotations from Isaiah. The first we would readily recognize from Isaiah 53, verse 1, who has believed our report? And then, in verses 39, goes on to say that therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart and be converted, and I should heal them. And that's the quotation from Isaiah 6, verse 10. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. In the context of John 12, the hymn is the Lord Jesus Christ. But Isaiah didn't see the distinct form or person of the Lord Jesus Christ, we would suggest. Isaiah was privileged to see a future revelation of God's glory manifested in his exalted son in the millennial age. Chapter 6 of Isaiah and verse 3 reading from Rotherham's translation, the fullness of the whole earth is his glory, the ultimate purpose of God. The Lord, Yahweh, of hosts, he who will be manifested in a multitude, will enthrone his king to fulfill his everlasting purpose of filling this earth with his glory. And this king is exalted he is high and lifted up. But that's a phrase which has a double-edged import. Before kingship had to come crucifixion. 
three times in John's Gospel. The term lifted up refers to the manner of Jesus' death. And in a later passage from Isaiah, chapter 52, we read God speaking, My hold, behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. A prophecy of the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that phrase extolled and exalted is exactly the same as high and lifted up in the Hebrew. But first had to come the crucifixion. As many as were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred, more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. But now he is exalted. He shall sprinkle many nations, the kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which has not been told them they shall see, and that which they have not heard they shall consider. So that passage combines the two prominent features of the Lord's work. First, the suffering servant, then exalted to be prince of the kings of the earth. Because the Lord Jesus declared the righteousness of God in his life and in his death, he was lifted up for the benefit of mankind. The Father has exalted him, and will set him to reign over the nations and kings of this earth. What are the essential characteristics of this king, priest, that qualify him to be high and lifted up by his God? Humility and obedience, sadly lacking in King Uzziah. In Philippians 2 and verse 8, we read that Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and to the glory of God the Father. Attending the throne, Isaiah 6 and verse 2, are seraphim, which is a plural of the noun seraph, which literally means fiery one. It comes from the root, to burn. That word seraph is part of the description of the fiery serpents that were used by God as agents of his judgments on a faithless generation in the wilderness. The seraphim in Isaiah 6 are not fiery serpents. They are symbolic figures that represent the immortalized saints in the millennial age who, when directed by their king, the Lord Jesus, perform fiery judgments upon the nations and the rulers of the world that oppose Christ's rule. We read in Psalm 149, and this, by the grace of God, would be our privilege. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the nations and punishments upon the people to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute the, upon them the judgment written. This honour have all the saints. Praise ye the Lord. We're not given a particularly detailed description of the seraphim 
in Isaiah 6, we learn that they have a face, they have feet, they have hands. Two particular features of the seraphim are recorded, which help us identify who they represent. They have six wings arranged in three pairs. There's two. With two of those wings, they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they fly, or more accurately, apparently, they hover. They're ready to do the bidding of the king. And they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The apostle John was given a similar vision to Isaiah in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 and 5. We'd like to turn there just to see some of the details that are given to us. Revelation chapter 4 and 5, chapters that go together and present one of the kingdom visions interspersed amongst the prophetic sections of the Apocalypse. Reading from Revelation 4 verse 1, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. The word heaven is used symbolically in Revelation to describe the ruling authority and power, depending upon the particular era in history. In this case, the kingdoms of the world have been replaced by the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ. We read in verse 2 of Revelation 4, John in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, that king upon the throne is the Lord Jesus, ruling upon earth in the kingdom of God. Verse 4, and round about the throne are 24 elders, representing the immortal saints in their priestly role, based on David, establishing 24 courses of priests for the temple service, so continual praise could be offered, and that's recorded in First Chronicles 25. Then in verses 6 and 7, there is the description of the four living creatures, and they have the features of the cherubim that we would read about in the Old Testament. Verse 7, one like a lion, the second like a calf, the third like a face of a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. So they have some of the features of the cherubim, but they're different from the descriptions of the cherubim in the Old Testament. In the book of Ezekiel, for example, in that verse 8 describes them as having six wings instead of the four wings that the cherubim have in Old Testament passages. And verse 8 also records them saying, Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, which was, and is, and is to come. These are the same symbolic beings that we found in Isaiah 6, representing the immortal saints, administering judgments and justice during the millennial age as agents of the king. Cherubim represent angelic activity in the pre-millennial age. Immortalized saints, we know, will be made equal to the angels. Luke 20, verse 36. 
and will take over the role of the angels in the kingdom. Hebrews 2 verse 5 says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the will to come, whereof we speak. In the symbology of Revelation 4 and 5, the immortalized saints, together with the angels, the whole family of God in heaven and earth, join their voices in praise to the central figure of the new creation. Verse 11, they sing, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. There is the central figure of the new creation. And moving into chapter 5 and verse 9, they sing a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to our God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Verse 11 and 12 then describe the mighty sound of this choir. No wonder it's a loud voice. Look at the number in verse 11. 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, an innumerable multitude, including the redeemed. And they sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Going back to Isaiah 6 and in verse 4, we had that suggestion of an earthquake as the posts of the house. The very foundations were moved like an earthquake was taking place. And it says that the house was filled with smoke. That word for smoke is, is often associated with the presence of God, sometimes in anger, sometimes in glory. And our minds are taken to the inauguration of the tabernacle and Solomon's temple when the glory of the Lord filled the house and it will happen again in Ezekiel's temple we read in Ezekiel 43 that the spirit took him up and brought him Ezekiel into the inner court and behold the glory of the Lord filled the house and he said unto me son of man the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever when these inaugurations took place in the past, the priests were not able to enter the building that was filled with the glory of the Lord. Isaiah, in the vision, was allowed to stay and to witness the glory of the majesty. What effect did it have upon the faithful prophet? Isaiah's reaction is in verse 5. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. And in the margin, you might have the alternative, I'm cut off. Like Isaiah was cut off from the house of the Lord. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So faced with such an awesome display of glory in the 
symbolic presence of one who would prove himself to be king of righteousness, Melchizedek. Isaiah felt like a spiritual leper. And he dwells in the midst, he says, of a people of unclean lips. And there's a humble recognition of shared sinful nature. But then there's a demonstration of God's grace and mercy. He can heal. He can forgive through the work of his son. We read another passage from Isaiah 57. Thus saith the high and the lofty one. The high and the lofty one. That's the same phrase as high and lifted up. That inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. How can we have a relationship with such a high and holy God? Because he is prepared to dwell also with him that is a contrite and humble spirit. To revive the heart, the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. The high and the lofty one and his exalted son are prepared to dwell with through the power of his word and to work in the lives through providence with those who are of a contrite and humble spirit, not with the proud, even if they are kings and rulers in the earth. If only Isaiah had responded in humility and contrition. And then we read in verses six and seven, that flew one, then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar, the altar of burnt sacrifice. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips. Not literally, be very painful. This is a vision. It's a symbolic act which had a tremendous effect. This has touched those lips which you said were unclean. And thine iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. The word purged is the Hebrew kafar, covering to make atonement. Leprosy was incurable by man. Isaiah could not make himself clean from iniquity and sin. Atonement is provided by contact with the altar of burnt offering, which represents the total dedication of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now cleansed from sin, Isaiah is fit for holy service. And what's his response? Verse 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. It's a spontaneous, grateful response. Isaiah does not hesitate, he doesn't pause to ask himself or the Lord. What am I letting myself in for? In his humble response, ready and willing to serve. Isaiah represents the one he sees glorified in the vision. Isaiah's name means the salvation of Yah. And it foreshadowed the work of the future savior. Isaiah stands as a historical type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his commission Verses 9 and 10. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. 
See ye indeed that perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. It was a statement that the majority of Isaiah's audience would not hear this message because they didn't want to hear it. Did that dampen Isaiah's willingness? No, not at all. As we read through the chapters of Isaiah, we get glimpses of the character of this lovely man, never failing in his commission, making heartfelt appeals to his people, many of whom did not hear. Those verses 9 and 10, or extracts from them, are quoted five times in the New Testament. We looked at one in John 12. They graphically describe a sad and perverse characteristic of human nature, that a man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest, and so lapses into spiritual blindness and deafness. The Lord Jesus quoted that passage to explain to his disciples why he taught in parables, because it would identify those who were genuinely interested in his message and would make the effort to ask for an explanation, to understand with their heart. There were not many that did. The Apostle Paul, speaking to unconvinced Jews in Rome, quoted those words, and he said in Acts 28 and verse 28, Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God, Isaiah, Isaiah's name, and surely those Jews would have picked that up. Isaiah is sent unto the Gentiles. And they were hearing. It was the situation that all the faithful prophets would, they did face, in Old Testament and New Testament, as they proclaimed their message to God's nation and to the nations of the world. The message which included a warning, a judgment to come, and the good news of the kingdom of God and salvation for those who would respond. What did Isaiah think about that prediction of lack of response? In verse 11, we have his reaction. Then said I, Lord, how long? How do we read Isaiah's reaction there? Was it how long do I have to persist with a message largely in vain? Or which seems to be the more likely spirit of the man, deeply concerned for his people. How long, O oh Lord, before this people come to a change of heart? The answer seems to be even more depressing. As verse 11 goes on, he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate, and the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaken in the midst of the land. This terrible picture of judgment. The land, the cities, the houses, desolated, 
emptied of inhabitant. The people of God, Isaiah's people that he loved, and pleaded with, taken into captivity, to far off places. Isaiah would have been breaking his heart by this stage, were it not for two things. Firstly, he has seen in a vision of the future, God's glory manifested in his son and the whole earth, not just the land of Israel, the whole earth, full of God's glory, ultimately. Even in Isaiah's day, there was a faithful remnant and in every era of history, a relatively small number of people who would reflect this glory to the best of their ability in their lives and characters and because they sincerely want to do that in their mortal lives, they will reflect God's glory perfectly in immortality. And secondly, that last verse, verse 13, is God's promise that he would not cast off his people forever. And there would be always a faithful remnant. Read verse 13 from Rotherham's more literal translation, because it's rather an obscure verse. It's to do with trees. Yet still there shall be in it a tenth, a remnant. Though it again be consumed, God will bring his judgments upon his people, like an oak, like a terebinth, which when felled, has a stock in them, a holy seed, shall be the stock thereof. And in the online version of Rotherham's translation, there's an extra word added at the end. It's not there in the published book version, so it may not be in the original text, but it's an appropriate word. Courage. Take heart, Isaiah. Your ministry will not be in vain. The trees mentioned have a particular quality of revival, as we read in Job 14, 7, that there is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again at a resurrection, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. You may know that in Jewish tradition, written in the Talmud, that Isaiah's manner of death involved a tree. It is related that Manasseh, presumably in the early part of his reign, accused Isaiah of blasphemy, as an echo through to our Lord Jesus, because Isaiah claimed to have seen the Lord of hosts sitting upon his throne, Isaiah 6. According to the account, Isaiah was placed bound in the hollow of a tree and sawn in two. We do not know how accurate that story is, but it is recorded in Hebrews 11 that this was the cruel end of at least one unnamed faithful character. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with a sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. And there's a description of some of the faithful cloud of witnesses that have gone before us 
sleeping now, waiting for us, the resurrection. In God's mercy, in most Western countries, we have not been subject to that kind of vicious persecution. Some are in more harsh regimes around the world. And we're left to ponder in our hearts, would our faith be strong enough to endure such situations? How was it that our brothers and sisters of past eras and some in more modern times held fast to their faith, even though it meant a brutal death? Well, Hebrews 11 reveals that they have a clear vision of that which was invisible. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, just passing through on the journey to the kingdom. In whatever way Isaiah may have died, he would have taken courage and comfort from that last verse, verse 13, knowing that God's people would not become extinct and that just as a tree, though cut down, would sprout again with new life, God would restore his life to be forever with the king as one of the multitude of seraphim. The death of the one Isaiah prefigured in name and spirit also involved a tree. The Lord Jesus Christ died not in a tree, but on a tree lifted up. But the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the branch that grew from his roots, was raised by the power of God, exalted high and lifted up to become the first fruits of the holy seed. So what lessons and encouragement can we gain from this faithful and sensitive prophet, Isaiah? In these last days of Gentile times, and we may only have days left. We do not know how long, O oh Lord. But we do know that the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Are we prepared to proclaim in whatever way we are able, individually or collectively, the message of impending judgment on a world that has departed far from God and balanced up with the good news of the kingdom and the hope of salvation, the hope of Israel. Are we motivated by the same willing attitude that Isaiah displayed with the vision of the King of Glory in front of him? Here am I. Send me. It's a message that few will want to hear or respond to, particularly if life gets back to some kind of normality, as pubs and clubs and restaurants and cinemas and shops open up again and folk return to eating and drinking, building and planting, buying and selling, until that day of the Lord will come. A normal life will be changed forever. It is a message 
that may be met with ridicule, perhaps with increasing antagonism and aggression, and even legislated against. But some will respond. Some are responding. We heard this afternoon from Brother Jamie Robson about the eagerness of the Iranian asylum seekers that's led to many baptisms, 700 spread throughout the UK. And also our young people. It's wonderful to see young men and young women responding, committing themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ in baptism in their youth. And those not so young, seminar attendees, in these last days, God is still calling out to the nations, a people for his name, a holy seed. The message is not in vain. His word is not returning to him void. In conclusion, we look to the one greater than Isaiah, Yahushua, Yah's salvation. Appreciating his spirit of dedication and willingness to serve, wonderfully prefigured by Isaiah. In Hebrews 10, verses 5 and 6, which quotes from Psalm 40, the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ, given in prophecy, the Spirit of Christ in the Psalms, 1,000 years before his birth, quoted in Hebrews 10. Wherefore, when he comes into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not but a body must have prepared me. In burnt offering and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure, or as Ram puts it, didst not delight. The Heavenly Father did delight in a beloved Son, dedicated to doing God's will, even unto death. And so Hebrews 10, verse 7 goes on, again in the words of the Lord Jesus, effectively, then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Here am I, send me, I come to do thy will, O God. By the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. That body of the Lord Jesus Christ both father and son were prepared to allow to be nailed to a wooden stake, lifted up in the manner of his death for our sakes. Christ, the perfect sacrifice, is also in a figure our altar. By contact with and commitment to him, our iniquity is taken away, our sin is purged. Our Lord Jesus Christ, raised from the dead on the third day, is now high and lifted up, exalted to the right hand of the Father in heaven, waiting to return to realize our hope of serving our King Priest forever as seraphim, the King Priests of the world to come. May we, by God's grace, be amongst that immortal multitude to raise our voices one to another, holy, 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 as the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Amen.